Welcome to episode 37, The Truth About the Bill of Rights and the Incorporation Doctrine. Before we get started, I wanted to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on Facebook or Twitter, and the subjects of socialism, the Federal Reserve, the Electoral College, the bashing of billionaires, or the Bill of Rights comes up, please share the specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at TruthQuest Podcast patronage page to see this episode's show notes on truthquest.podbean.com. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on Stitcher, YouTube, Spotify, and Podbean. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Several weeks ago, the Supreme Court released a unanimous opinion about a Maryland asset forfeiture case. Now, the word unanimous and the Supreme Court are very rarely used in the same sentence these days, but the opinion made most everyone cheer, regardless of political affiliations, because the practice of police taking property from suspected criminals, not convicted criminals, mind you, seems universally distasteful and unconstitutional. And when I say unconstitutional, I mean unconstitutional in the state constitutional sense, not the United States Constitution. More on this in a minute. Needless to say, this particular case affords me an opportunity to talk to you about something called the Incorporation Doctrine. As a prelude to this episode, I want to give you a refresher of the discussion in Episode 3, The Truth About the Constitution. Now remember, the Constitution created the federal government. The states already existed, and they got together and agreed to a contract, the Constitution. In that contract was the creation of this general or federal government, to which very few enumerated powers were granted. See Article 1, Section 8 for that list, or you can listen to Episode 3. All other powers were left to the states. See, the founders hated centralized political power, i.e. King George. They fought a war to rid themselves of such and had no intention of repeating that mess in America. As you probably recall from middle school, the Bill of Rights are the first ten amendments of the Constitution. They were necessary because the states were concerned that the newly created federal government would usurp the powers of the states. So they required the amendments as protection against federal overreach. The first ten amendments do not grant any rights. They simply further define the limited nature of the federal government. Now the next sentence is extremely important for you to understand, so please listen carefully. The Bill of Rights does not apply to the states. The Bill of Rights only applies to the federal government. Per the Constitution, states can pretty much do whatever they want short of the allowances in Article 1, Section 8. Why is that? Because the founders assumed that local is better and more manageable. Plus, every state had its own constitution. As a matter of fact, the United States Constitution is a mirror image of many of the constitutions from the original 13 colonies. These state constitutions contained free speech and gun rights measures. They included provisions protecting its citizens from unreasonable search and seizures. Most every provision you see in the Bill of Rights came from a state constitution. When state governments violate our rights, we should not depend on the feds to protect us. Doing so simply empowers the beast. So here's a recap of the Bill of Rights. The First Amendment, freedom of speech. Second Amendment, right to bear arms. Third Amendment prohibited the quartering of soldiers, so the British soldiers weren't allowed to just pick a house and stay there. Fourth Amendment 
probable cause and unreasonable search and seizures, i.e. asset forfeiture. Fifth Amendment, grand jury and self-incrimination. Sixth and Seventh Amendments were speedy public trial by jury. The Eighth Amendment, excessive fines, excessive bail. The Ninth Amendment was like a safety net clause basically stating that people have other rights besides those listed here. And the Tenth Amendment, the states have all the power not specifically delegated to the federal government. Can the state governments mistreat their citizens? Of course. But there is no evidence in the Constitutional Convention or the state ratifying conventions to suggest that the federal government be empowered to police the states. Quite the opposite approach was painstakingly taken. Those battles need to be fought at the state level. If the state constitution doesn't offer sufficient protection, work to get it amended. But the last thing you should do is hand power to the federal government it is never intended to exercise. Don't turn the feds into a liberty enforcement squad. If you notice in the First Amendment, it says Congress shall make no law. It does not say anything like state legislatures shall make no law. It's really clear. There exists no founding era evidence that Congress or the state ratifiers intended for the protections included in the Bill of Rights to bind the states. In fact, doing so would essentially create a federal veto over state laws, a massive expansion of central government authority, the exact opposite of the stated purpose of including a Bill of Rights in the Constitution. So with that background on the Bill of Rights, let's shift our focus to the 14th Amendment, adopted in 1868, and then learn how the Supreme Court has warped it into a weapon against the states. Section 1 of the Amendment contains the relevant language. It states, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any laws which shall abridge the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive a person of life, liberty, property, without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So if you read through the writings and speeches of proponents of the 14th Amendment, you can see clearly how they intended to embody the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Equal protection simply means that laws must be enforced the same against blacks and whites. If whites were guaranteed a right, then so were blacks. Things like the right to enter into contracts, own property, inherit property, travel freely, and access to courts. The right to due process, in a nutshell, guaranteed procedural fairness for all people. Many in Congress feared that future Congresses would overturn the Civil Rights Act, so they opted for a constitutional amendment. The 14th Amendment was the result of these efforts. For us modern Americans, you must unlearn the idea drilled into your head your entire lives that what the Supreme Court says is the law of the land. That is not true. They offer opinions, not rulings. Legislatures write laws. The courts offer opinions about them. So it is more important for us to understand what the drafters and ratifiers of the amendment said during the debate than the opinion of some guy or gal in a black robe a hundred years later. For example, Senator Lehman Trumbull, who guided the 14th Amendment through the Senate, had this to say in a speech in Chicago as the amendment was being debated. He declared that Section 1 of the amendment to, quote, be a reiteration of the rights as set forth in the Civil Rights Bill, end quote. Indiana Senator Henry Smith Lane and several other congressmen addressed their states reaffirmed Trumbull's views. Martin Thayer, a Republican from Pennsylvania, declared, quote, 
It is but incorporating in the Constitution the principle of the Civil Rights Bill, which has lately become a law, end quote. West Virginia Representative George Latham said, quote, The Civil Rights Bill, which is now a law, covers exactly the same ground as the amendment, end quote. Howard J. Graham, an advocate of an abolitionist reading of the amendment, said, quote, Virtually every speech in the debates on the amendment, Republican and Democrat alike, said or agreed that the amendment was designed to embody or incorporate the Civil Rights Act, end quote. Honestly, when you look at the reason for the 14th Amendment and read the arguments made by its authors, it really should be a dead amendment, just like prohibition. It is no longer relevant in modern America, especially with all the anti-discrimination laws on the books. Historian and constitutional scholar Raoul Berger had this to say, quote, if there was a concealed intention to go beyond the Civil Rights Act, it was not ratified. So in 1873, the Slaughterhouse Cases confirmed the 14th Amendment's purpose to protect freed slaves. Keep in mind, this case was adjudicated only a few years after the passage of the 14th Amendment. The majority opinion included a series of questions answered emphatically at the end. Here is how the opinion reads. Quote, was it the purpose of the 14th Amendment by the simple declaration that no state should make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States to transfer the security and protection of all the civil rights which we have mentioned for the states of the federal government? And where is it declared that Congress shall have the power to enforce that article? Was it intended to bring within the power of Congress the entire domain of civil rights heretofore belonging exclusively to the states? All this and more must follow if the proposition of the plaintiffs in error be sound. The effect is to fetter and degrade the state governments by subjecting them to the control of Congress in the exercise of powers heretofore universally conceded to them of the most ordinary and fundamental character. And here's the money quote. We are convinced that no such results were intended by the Congress which proposed these amendments, nor by the legislatures of the states which ratified them. Here's another example. Prudential Insurance Company of America v. Cheek, 1922. It concerned New York's ability to re restrict free speech. In this case, the majority opinion repeated this concept, quote, But as we have stated, neither the 14th Amendment nor any provision of the Constitution of the United States imposes upon the states any restrictions about freedom of speech or liberty of silence, nor, we may add, does it confer any rights of privacy upon either persons or corporations? End quote. What about this case? Connecticut General Insurance Company v. Johnson, 1938. Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black wrote the following, quote, The states did not adopt the amendment, the 14th Amendment, with knowledge of its sweeping meaning under its present construction. No section of the amendment gave notice to the people that if adopted, it would subject every state law affecting judicial process to censorship of the United States courts. No word in all this amendment gave any hint that its adoption would deprive the states of their long-recognized power to regulate judicial processes. End quote. Finally, Barctus v. Illinois, 1959. Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter correctly explained, quote, we have held from the beginning and uniformly that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment does not apply to the states any of the provisions of the first eight amendments as such. The relevant historical materials have been canvassed by this court and by legal scholars. These materials demonstrate conclusively that Congress and the members of the legislatures of the ratifying states did not contemplate that the 14th Amendment was a shorthand incorporation of the first eight amendments, making them applicable as explicit restrictions upon the states, end quote. 
So I say all this and present all these cases to you as a way to introduce you to what's called the incorporation doctrine. As author Brian Vanio explains, under this doctrine, the court incorporated various protections from the Bill of Rights into the 14th Amendment's due process clause as a component of liberty that no state could deny. By treating these restrictions on federal power as fundamental rights protected by the 14th Amendment, the court stole from the people their natural and constitutional authority to set the boundaries of such rights in their state governments, end quote. So, in other words, the Supreme Court, contrary to some of its early opinions, applied rules designed to restrict the federal government to the states. Remember, the purpose of the 14th Amendment was to ensure the protection of a specific set of rights of the formerly freed slaves, not an incorporation of the Bill of Rights. The incorporation of the Bill of Rights against the states was not the intention of the 14th Amendment. It is simply used by, as a method for federal judges to meddle in the affairs of the states. It's just another example of judicial activism. It's death by a million bad precedents. I use an analogy in episode 16, The Truth About the Supreme Court, about football referees changing their rules in the middle of a game. It's the same with the Supreme Court. A few decades earlier, they had one opinion. All of a sudden, fast forward 20, 30, 50 years, and the opinions change. How is that possible? The Constitution didn't change. The court's opinion changed. Author Brian Vanyo goes on, quote, To the court that endured the Civil War and Reconstruction, it was perfectly clear that the 14th Amendment did not extend the application of the Bill of Rights beyond the federal government, end quote. Jason Lewis had this to say in his book, Power Divided, quote, And when the court decides to apply the Bill of Rights to state law, it winds up trampling on the most important safeguards of our liberties, the division of power between the federal and state government. That is exactly what has happened through the legal phenomenon known as the incorporation doctrine. The fundamental thing I want you to remember is the Supreme Court issues opinions. It's not rulings. They have no enforcement mechanism. Congress has them, not the court. So what happened over time was the court incorporated the 4th, the 5th, the 6th, and the 8th Amendment prohibitions into the Due Process Clause. They then incorporated right to have an abortion and the right to homosexual sodomy into the due process clause. They restricted religious displays. They imposed welfare restrictions, restrictions on school prayer. They interceded on death penalty cases, all in the name of the 14th Amendment, applying it to the states. But the 14th Amendment has nothing to do with the states. It only restricted the federal government. Even conservative justices like the late Antonin Scalia considered the incorporation of the 14th Amendment to the states as, quote, settled law. That phrase, settled law, really bothers me when spoken by a justice who is referring to his court's opinions. You can refer to settled law when speaking of legislation, but not Supreme Court opinions. These people are not lawmakers. They are opinion makers of laws written and passed by lawmakers. Think about how perverted our constitutional system is today, regardless of your political leanings. When the states pass strict gun control laws, what happens? Opponents of the restrictions run to the federal courts and scream, Second Amendment! Does the federal government possess the power to regulate state gun laws through the Second Amendment? No. When someone refuses to bake a cake for a homosexual couple, what happens? Opponents run to the federal court and scream that the baker is violating their due process. Does the federal government possess the power to force commerce under some federal anti-discrimination law? No. 
I want to review a couple of cases that kind of show you how this incorporation doctrine progressed. In 1925, there was a Supreme Court case called Gitlow v. New York. The opinion stated, quote, that it assumed that freedom of speech and press, which are protected by the First Amendment from abridgment by Congress, are among the fundamental personal liberties and rights protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment from impairment by the states. There you have it. Three little words, by the states. That's all you needed to get the ball rolling. Death by a million bad presidents. The court used incorporation to restrict the state's ability to restrict speech. In Gitlow v. New York, the court took that power away from the states. The state of New York already had a constitution. Now remember, the Supreme Court issues opinions, not rulings. Kings issue rulings. When I say death by a million bad presidents, or in this case, one bad one, caused the proverbial slippery slope to be greased in a major way. The incorporation doctrine has led to the unprecedented incursion by the federal government into the business of the individual states. No state would have ratified the Constitution with the knowledge of this out-of-control federal behavior. And quite frankly, 100 years ago, the states would have flipped off the Supreme Court and told them, that's your opinion, you have the constitutional right to publish that opinion, but we don't give a shit. Or in the words of a 7-year-old, make me. Here are some of the Supreme Court's greatest hits in this arena. The Warren Court incorporated the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 8th Amendment provisions in the 1960s. In the County of Allegheny v. American Civil Liberties Union in 1989, the display of a menorah in downtown Pittsburgh was ruled or opined as constitutional, while a Christian nativity scene in the same area was ruled or opined as unconstitutional. The Supreme Court has no jurisdiction to tell Pittsburgh what it can and cannot do. They expanded welfare benefits in a case in California in 1941. In this case, the state of California had passed laws limiting welfare benefits to non-residents, and the court decided, nope, you can't do that. They imposed opinions regulating the religious teachings in public schools. In 2008, it opined, criminals who rape children have constitutional right to evade execution through the incorporation of the Eighth Amendment. That's in Kentucky versus Louisiana in 2008. The display of Ten Commandments at the courthouse was unconstitutional because, of course, it was the establishment of a religion incorporated via the 14th Amendment. Because, after all, you know, the display of a religious symbol is establishing a state-sponsored religion. And in a most recent case, in 2005, Kilo versus City of New London, local governments are allowed to seize private property from individuals and provide it to a company, or in this case a developer, because of the potential tax revenue. This was justified under the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment. The important thing to remember, instead of handling stuff in state courts where even if a crappy decision is handed down, at least it only applies to the people of one state and not 50, every time the federal court acts, their authority binds every single American. Now, if you think I'm crying over spilled milk with this settled law thing and all that, consider these two court opinions from 1833 and 1875. While I'm explaining them, I want you to ask yourself the question, what happened in the interim that changed the application of the Bill of Rights to the states? As I mentioned before, the Constitution hasn't changed. Well, the answer is judicial activism, which is why the founders created three co-equal branches of government, the weakest of which was and should be the judiciary. Yet we the people, and Congress, and presidents alike, for some reason accepts 
Supreme Court opinions as if they are dictates from God. Nonetheless, the incorporation of the Bill of Rights via the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause on the states is unconstitutional and should be ignored by the states. The judiciary has no enforcement mechanism and needs to be put back in its rightful place. So in 1833, there was a case uh, called Barron v. Baltimore. Now, this is before the passage of the 14th Amendment, and the case revolved around the application of the Fifth Amendment to a state court case. John Marshall wrote, quote, The Constitution was ordained and established by the people of the United States for themselves, for their own government, and not for the government of the individual states. Each state established a constitution for itself, and in that constitution provided such limitations and restrictions on the powers of their particular government, as its judgment dictated. The people of the United States framed such a government for the United States as they suppose best adapted to their situation and best calculated to promote their interests. If these provisions be correct, the Fifth Amendment must be understood as restraining the power of the general government, or to us modern folks, the federal government, not as applicable to the states. Additionally, the opinion read, These amendments demanded security against the apprehended encroachment of the general government, not against these of the local governments. End quote. And finally, in an 1875 case, which is just a few years after the ratification of the 14th Amendment, when it was fresh in everyone's mind, United States versus Cruchet, quote, the Bill of Rights was not intended to limit the powers of the state government in respect to their own citizens, but to operate upon the national government alone. The 14th Amendment prohibits the state from denying to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law, which is related back to the Civil Rights Act, as we talked about. The only obligation resting upon the United States, the federal government, is to see that the states do not deny the right. This the amendment guarantees, but no more. The power of the national government is limited to the enforcement of this guarantee. End quote. Okay, so, what are the takeaways from this episode? Number one, regardless of the opinions issued by the Supreme Court, the Bill of Rights only applies to the federal government, not the states. Period. Number two, Regardless of the opinions issued by the Supreme Court, the 14th Amendment was passed to protect the rights of freed slaves across the country, but in no way did it indicate that any of the rights expressed in the Bill of Rights applied to the states. Period. Number three. The incorporation of some of the Bill of Rights against the states via the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment is an extra-constitutional construct of the Supreme Court. And number four. The Supreme Court is not supreme. The judiciary was meant to be the weakest of the three branches of the federal government. Their purpose is to check and balance the laws passed by the legislature and signed by the president. Their only mechanism is to offer opinions. Think about that for a second. They are allowed to offer opinions. What is an opinion? Everyone has them, yet no one else really cares about yours. It's actually quite demeaning when you think about it. Yet for some ungodly reason, we accept their opinions as law, as settled law. It's bullshit. Congress and the states need to stand up and flip off the Supreme Court when they offer opinions that are not grounded in sound constitutional law. Just like President Andrew Jackson did almost 200 years ago when the court's opinion went against his interests, he was reported to have said something to the effect, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. In other words, he patted the nice little justices on the head and said, that's a nice opinion, 
You seem to have spent a lot of time thinking it through and writing it up, but I'll pass. No thanks. That is the appropriate response to a power-hungry activist court that seems bound and determined to kill our Constitution one opinion at a time. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.